morning, Mill City. Uh, my name is Aaron, and I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, for those, if we've not met before, um, I served in ministry out on the East Coast for 12 years as a church planter out there. Um, had a great time, uh, but we've since changed careers and changed locations. Obviously, we're here now. Um, I'm not surprised you're not in Salem, Massachusetts right now, um, if you're curious. Uh, now I work for Bremer Bank as a nonprofit banker there, uh, supporting um, do-gooders in the area. Uh, this morning, before we get going, uh, I want to just do a quick unscripted plug for family ministry. Uh, I get the chance to be up here about once a quarter or so, which is fun, uh, but my most regular way of involved, being involved in the church here is to be with the K-Prep room downstairs. Uh, I do that once a month, and it is so, so, so fun. So if you're still looking for a place to get plugged in, I would highly recommend it, uh, particularly and especially if you're a dude. Uh, it's really important for especially the earliest kids to see other men uh, who love Jesus, loving them. And so if you're Considering about it or thinking about it, come talk to me. I'd love to uh, welcome you into that, that group as well. It's really, it's really a good time. Okay, uh, this morning we're going to talk about options. But before we do that, I want to take just a couple seconds of silence uh, to quiet our hearts and minds and get ready for uh, hearing God's word together. Uh, just Life is so busy and crazy sometimes that it's helpful to have just a moment to reset. You know? So we're going to do that and then we'll get, in, get into it. So join me in a moment of silence. Lord Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we ask, Jesus, that this morning as we come together to listen to you and to, to look at your word together, that, Jesus, you would help us to see uh, more clearly and love you more deeply and follow you more closely uh, because you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life that we crave. Um, God, we ask that you would give us the strength to follow you um, courage to, to love our neighbors as you have loved us, uh, that we might follow you in all of our days. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Well, like I said, you know, options, we love our options, don't we? Uh, we love having the ability to choose and to customize and to create something that is uniquely tailored to our tastes and preferences. I mean, for example, right, you've got Batman or Superman, depending on your choice. Uh, we have the American Idol or The Voice. Star Trek or Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, French fries, sweet potato fries, cheesy fries, Parmesan truffle fries. Uh, there are options everywhere. Just consider the Cheesecake Factory, for example. Chocolates from those who've been. Uh, my daughter, Elsie, and I have loved going to the Cheesecake Factory since, uh, for dress-up daddy-daughter dates, uh, basically since the time she could talk. Uh, but I gotta admit, going there is kind of overwhelming, isn't it? Uh, I mean, did you know that in addition to portion sizes so huge you could feed a family for a week, in addition to that, there are 251 unique items to choose from on the menu? 251. 251 items and over 100 sauces made in-house each and every day. That's crazy, right? No wonder their menus are basically a book. And as if their expansive menus don't give you enough options, every server at the, at the factory is trained to follow your order with additional questions about options. The jambalaya is spicy. Is that okay or would you prefer it mild? Uh, the dish also comes with french fries, but we also have coleslaw, side salad, soups, or sweet potato fries. What would you like? 
The salad normally comes with balsamic vinaigrette, but we also have this awesome citrus zinger dressing that I really love. Maybe you want to give that a try too. What do, what do you think? We have options everywhere around us. So now, some of us, right, we love this panoply of choices our culture gives us, but others of us find it crippling. But wherever you are, we all have this one thing in common, that not only have we gotten used to having all these options, now we kind of expect it. And slowly, slowly, this expectation for options bleeds over into how we live our lives, including our relationships with others, and even, often, our relationship with God. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and make a wild guess, but I imagine that most of us in this room probably have some kind of knowledge or belief in God, or at least have some kind of faith, enough in a higher power that we choose to come here in the morning instead of stay in bed. Amen? Okay. And I imagine that most of us in this room probably also believe that the God we know in Jesus is pretty great and worthy of our worship, yeah? Okay. But you see, worshiping God isn't a problem for any of us. It's worshiping God and God alone. That's the problem. We love God, we really do, but we also really want to keep our options open, too. Jesus is totally my rock and my salvation. I just also know that school is really demanding and I don't really have time for a Sabbath right now. I know that God's unfailing love lasts forever, but we don't got forever to get our kids into college. The Lord is my shepherd. I know this, but I also know that I better hang on to my money just in case I actually ever do have some want. Jesus is great when he's teaching an obvious morality that everyone else should uphold. Jesus is fine when it looks like he'll work for me and get me where I want to be. But if he's too unpopular or puts me at too much of a disadvantage or asks too much of my life, well, it's not like I'll quit worshiping him. I'll just keep him on the shelf as one option among many. For so many of us, and myself included, this is our lived out rubber-hits-the-road practical theology. We want God and. We want God and money, God and beauty, God and grades, God and family, God and health, God and recreation, God and safety, God and comfortable housing, God and approval of my superiors, God and my life plan. We want options. We want God and. But why? Right? Why do we do this? We humans have attempted to do this all the way back to Genesis 3, but why? Why do we keep trying to have our God and something else options open like this all the time? Uh, Of course, we could spend all day coming up with all kinds of reasons, really, but there are a few common ones. Sometimes it's because we're greedy and we think that we deserve more than what God's given. Sometimes it's because we're afraid and think that God might not come through for us when we really need it. Sometimes it's because we're just lazy and we'd rather choose the quick and easy path instead of the hard work that following God often entails. Sometimes it's because we're lustful and think that there might be more pleasure or more excitement outside the boundaries that God has given us for our own well-being. There are as many reasons to keep our options open as there are temptations out there. And Captain Obvious here, but Jesus is no dummy. Jesus knows this about us. He knows our proclivity is to hedge our bets and try to keep as many of our God and options open as we can. Which is why I think we find Jesus having the conversation that he does, where he does. So let's dig in. 
If you're just joining us for the first time, or the first time in a long time, we're in a sermon series right now that we're calling The Way of Jesus, where we've been doing a deep dive into what it means to follow him. And today we're looking at what it means to choose the way of Jesus. So I invite you to jump into our passage with me together. Uh, If you have them, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 27 to 35. That's Mark 8, 27 to 35. Um, I'm going to read it out loud here, and you can follow along your own Bibles or on the screen behind me, whatever it is that gives you joy. Matthew 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have the... In mind, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Now, right away, when we look at this passage, right away, we find out that Jesus and his disciples were camping out at a town called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was a fascinating place for someone looking for options. Located just 35 miles north of Jesus' ministry headquarters in Capernaum, Caesarea Philippi was a regional epicenter for virtually any flavor of spirituality you might want. It had an abundant water supply exploding out of this huge cave in the middle of what is otherwise a desert. And this abundance of water made the area extremely fertile both agriculturally, but also religiously. See, during the earliest days of Israel, this is one of the most important centers for the worship of Baal, the chief god of the rival Canaanites who lived next door. Centuries later, as Canaanite culture was superseded by Greek culture, the Greeks began to circulate legends that this very spot marked the birthplace of the Greek god Pan. While Pan was venerated as the god of nature, fields, forests, and flocks, He was also the God of overwhelming, consuming, crippling terror, vestiges of which we still remember today, even though we are thousands of years removed. And ancient folklore taught that Pan loved Caesarea best of all because of the abundant pleasure it afforded him. Legend said that this spot was particularly habitable for nymphs, those mythological spirits of nature imagined as beautiful maidens. Maidens who especially loved inhabiting rivers, woods, and the songs and springs of waterfalls, all of which Caesarea had in spades. What's more, the Greeks also whispered that this cave at Caesarea was one of the gates to the hallows of death, Hades itself. It was believed that the water rushing forth from this cave had none other than the river Styx as its tributary. And so countless people would cast sacrifices into this cave as goodwill offerings both to the old gods and the new, all in hope that 
these gods would look kindly upon their dead answers who'd crossed through those very gates to the underworld below. And then again, centuries later, in the years leading up to the birth of Jesus, Herod the Great, the king of Israel, added his own Roman thumbprint to the religiosity of the region. Because it was here in Caesarea that Herod oversaw the building of a massive temple made of glistening white marble and a marvel in the modern world. Only this time, Herod dedicated his temple to the most powerful god of them all, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire. Caesar, the self-described son of God and Lord and Savior of the world. So right here, in the region of Phil- surrounding Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus and the disciples now stand, temples, cultic shrines, and sacrificial altars were literally littered across the countryside. Here's why I tell you all this. At Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus and the disciples now stand, you could make sacrifices to persuade the gods of provision, pleasure, or power to look kindly upon you. Caesarea afforded you all the options you could ever want. And as here in Caesarea Philippi, surrounded by all these options that Jesus asks his disciples a very poignant question. He asks, who do you say that I am? It's an interesting question, given where they are, isn't it? Many have gone so far as to speculate that Jesus intentionally juxtaposed himself against all the world's religions and all their splendor and glory and with all their many varied options in order to invite those who were with him to compare those options to what they saw in Jesus. And I wonder if Jesus deliberately set himself against this backdrop when he asked his disciples who they thought he was. Because just like the setting of Jesus' question suggests, I'm often like those people living in the villages around Caesarea. I love to keep my options open. It's just so easy for me to get distracted or to get overwhelmed or to get desperate and want to know that I've got the same kind of options that Caesarea has. Yet, maybe we technically don't actually worship Pan, the god of fear, anymore. But how many times have I made some huge life decision Not out of faith, but out of fear or insecurity or anxiety. If Jesus doesn't come through for me, well, at least I've hedged my bets. Yeah, perhaps we don't technically bow to Aphrodite any longer, but how many of us functionally worship the ideals of youth or beauty or body image? If Jesus doesn't come through for me, at least maybe how I look will. We no longer dance before Dionysus or Bacchus, the gods of wine and pleasure, but how many of us claim to worship Jesus and yet aren't really fighting all that hard against our bad habits or our unhealthy attachments or the pursuit of our own gratification or happiness? If Jesus doesn't come through for me, well, at least I can enjoy life while I got it. How many of us make our job choices, our friend choices, our relational choices, our time and money choices, not out of a desire to follow Jesus, but out of a desire to protect ourselves? How many altars of achievement, appearance, approval, or pleasure confront us with every scroll through Instagram? And just consider how much we sacrifice to appease these gods. And so with all these options as a dramatic backdrop, we find Jesus of Nazareth, a penniless Galilean laborer surrounded by a few dozen ordinary men and women. Jesus was standing on a road in an area literally littered with temples, promising any kind of life you want. 
And it's here that Jesus asks those around him who have been with him through it all, who have seen it all, who have heard it all. In the midst of all these popular opinions and religions, Jesus asks those closest to him, who do people say that I am? And that's also an important question. Because Jesus knew even then how the mobs were already trying to use Jesus to push an option, to push an agenda. Some saw him as a great teacher or a particularly insightful rabbi, ready to rewrite how the Bible was understood and applied. Some saw him as Israel's greatest hope for successful political revolution since the days of David himself. Some thought highly enough of Jesus to say that he was John the Baptist, a powerful prophet who spoke truth to power. Others saw him as Elijah, a prophet who used the edge of the sword to bring down enemy powers. And yet others said Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets, who lamented over the abuses of power. But all these answers have one thing in common. They all point to Jesus as an option that advances an agenda. They all describe a vision of Jesus that pushes a pet project or political ideal. And just like Jesus' contemporaries, our temptation is to paint Jesus into a particular image that's palatable for me and suits my own agenda. See, Jesus knew even then how tempting it would be to choose who we want Jesus to be, what we want him to be against, who we want him to be for, rather than accepting Jesus on Jesus' own terms. And so Jesus hears these answers from his disciples and presses in. He looks at his friends and gets a little more personal and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? He asks, so, given all that you see around you, given what everyone says about me, given what everyone wants me to be and do, who am I to you? Who do you say that I am? The disciples had been following Jesus for a while now, and they were slowly starting to figure it all out. All of Jesus' followers knew that he was unique, that he was special. From the very beginning, they could tell that there was something, you know, unique about this guy. And while you'd think that the many healings and the calming of storms or the walking on water or the two miraculous feedings that fed over 9,000 people would all have been dead giveaways to who he was, still, Jesus' true identity was almost impossible to believe. Could this be it? Could he really be the long-awaited Messiah that we've been waiting for? It was unthinkable. But by this point, the disciples could no longer deny the obvious conclusion. This truly was their deliverer. And so Peter answers their whispered suspicions. You are the Messiah. But even this answer had an agenda attached to it. You see, the Jews had been oppressed for generations by foreign invaders, and they'd been waiting for the Lord to send his long-promised Savior to rescue them. And the Jesus they wanted was a Jesus with an agenda, a Messiah who would do their bidding, a Messiah who would win their kingdom back for them. They wanted a Messiah that kept their options open. But this wasn't the kind of Messiah that Jesus ever intended to be, was it? We read on in Mark 8, 31. So Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. 
See, Jesus wants to make it crystal clear. There is only one option with Jesus. There is only one way with Jesus. And that way is the cross. But that option was not what Peter had in mind. So within seconds, literally seconds, after Peter makes his great confession, he gets so distracted by his own goals and prerogatives and vision for who Jesus ought to be, rather than accepting Jesus on Jesus' own terms, that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, would turn around and call his friend Peter right to his face, Satan. Awkward. Almost as fast as Peter made his declaration of faith, he got distracted with competing concerns and wanting to keep all his options on the table. But Jesus sees this. He sees Peter's heart. He sees Peter's intention to serve his own agendas. He sees Peter's desires to protect his own significance and security. Jesus sees Peter's desire to use Jesus in order to keep all his options open and on the table. And so Jesus addresses this temptation straight away. When calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. These people did want to be Jesus' followers. They did want to learn the way of the master. And after hearing Jesus' wisdom and seeing his life, they wanted to learn to emulate everything they could from him, or at least they thought they did. But Jesus insists that no one can learn anything from him. What Jesus says won't make any sense unless they first learn to practice denying themselves. Nothing that Jesus says will make any sense until they're willing to give up their preferences and agendas and their options. There is only one road for those who wish to follow him. There's only one option for those who wish to live like Jesus. There's only one option for those who wish for glory like Jesus. And that option is the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. The way of love that gives everything, everything, even our very lives for our neighbors and our enemies. And and notice something with me. We read this passage, or at least I read this passage at least, and I often insert one small phrase after the word must. When I read this passage, I like to read it and say internally, you know, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must be willing to give up your own way which is not what it says at all. We want to make Jesus' command about loving others, and we want to make it about intention. We want to make it about options. But the way of Jesus isn't an option for those who wish to follow him, because there is only one way. And that way was the last thing those ancient Jews following Jesus wanted or expected him to say. Because picking up your cross doesn't sound like joyful victory. It sounds like crushing defeat and disappointment, doesn't it? And again and again and again it does. Peter and the disciples had been pretty sure they'd found their king. They thought Jesus was the Messiah, the one who would crush and conquer and win the world for them. They thought they'd found the one who would give them all the options that money or power or pleasure could ever promise. But Jesus wasn't going to be 
that kind of king. Jesus wasn't interested in choosing the many options available to him for self-preservation. He wasn't interested in exalting himself. Jesus wasn't interested in claiming his place among the great. He wasn't interested in using his privilege or power to his own advantage the way that we might, the way that Peter expected him to. If anyone did, Jesus had every ability to choose what was convenient for himself, to choose the path of least pain, of least resistance. He could have chosen the paths of money or power or pleasure. I mean, Jesus could have even called down a legion of angels and conquered the world like this. But he didn't. He doesn't. Instead, in love, Jesus would let go of all of his privileges. He'd let go of all of his options. And like a sheep led to the slaughter, he would go where the angry hands led him. He would kneel before the oppressors when he was told to. He'd welcome the mockery of thorns when it was handed to him. He'd give up his dignity when his robes were taken from him. He'd hand over his reputation to the heckles of his critics. He'd go to the cross to be crucified. He'd go to the cross to endure the most dehumanizing and mocking form of murder ever invented. And as his life neared its end on that cross, notice how he exercises his final options. And look what he chooses with his last breaths. After being beaten and bloodied and crucified, he makes sure that his captors and condemners and crucifiers all know that they are completely forgiven. One of the last things he does is to ensure that sinners and social outcasts, even criminals condemned to die next to him, all know that they are freely welcomed into the kingdom. No, they're more than welcomed. They're wanted in the kingdom. At the last, no matter how tempting it might have been to choose something else, to choose another option, in the end, for the joy set before him, Jesus gave up all those other options and makes one choice. He chooses to pour out his life for you and for me. Jesus stands at the doorway of death, and yet the only option he chooses, at the, even at the bitter end, is love. The only option Jesus chooses is love. And this has all kinds of consequences for us. That quiet shame that no one else knows but you, the chaotic home life that you can't escape, the marriage you keep screwing up, the sin cycle you can't break, the remorse you can't shake, the dishonesty that you've been hiding behind, the disloyalty that you demonstrated, all the ways that we've chosen Jesus and because of fear or greed or pride, Jesus made one choice for all that. Just like he made one choice for the joy that we can't remember the love that we drove away, the disappointment in their eyes, the doubt in our minds, the shame that fogs up our brains, the guilt haunting our hearts, the pain in our shaking voice, and all the many, many options that we've tried to pick as we try to self-medicate or numb away this incredible pain. All of that, all the sin and all the shame and all the pain, all the times that we chose God and some other option, all of that gets nailed to that tree on Calvary. Even though Jesus had every option at his disposal, Jesus chose to give them all up for you and for me. 
And it's his life given as a ransom for many that gives us more than we could ever ask or imagine. Because it's the cross that tells us how unsurpassably loved and cherished we are. It's the option of the cross that lets, lets us know that we don't ever have to wonder anymore if God really sees me, if God really hears me, if God really understands me, if God will ever rescue me. We don't have to ask those questions anymore, and we don't ever have to worry ever again about whether or not God will choose us. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, God gave us a new option that's not based on our faithfulness, but rather on God's forgiveness. The cross undeniably communicates that God will absolutely and always and again and again and again lay down every option to love you. And it's in that truth, it's in that promise, it's from that forgiveness that Jesus tells us to go and do likewise for others. If any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. What's the one way of Jesus? The cross. The cross is the way. That is the road that Jesus walked. Of all the infinite options available to him, the cross is the option that Jesus chose. And to follow Jesus means we walk the same road as our master. To follow Jesus means that we go where he goes, to the cross and then to the crown. And I'll be the first to admit, doing this ain't easy. Because following Jesus means we choose what's good for our enemy first in the same way that God chose us first. And like the life of Jesus demonstrates, this is a messy process. It's bloody. It's painful. It costs us time and energy and resources. And Pastor Step will unpack more of this, what it looks like next week. But for today, let's just take a step back and ask what this might mean for us this week. Maybe for you, this means that it's time to sacrifice precious time or money in order to serve others who you might not even like very much. Or maybe it means finally forgiving instead of holding on to that grudge you've been holding for so long. Maybe this means it's time to be honest about our own struggles and look at our own sin and shame in the eye, stuff that we just rather ignore or numb or sweep under a rug, but then ask for forgiveness from the person we've wronged. Maybe it means doing simple acts of kindness for your upstairs dorm room neighbor who drives you crazy because of all the dancing they do in their dorm room when they're stressed out. Or, or maybe for you, today's the day you need to just take a step back yet and first wrestle with Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? 